If you asked most people of a certain age, who was the first British person to go into space? They would tell you that it was Helen Charman in 1991. If you asked them, who was the first British person to land on the moon? They will always give the wrong answer, unless they say that no British person has ever walked on the moon. Well, that's the official truth. What they won't tell you is that just before the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, there was a top secret mission to the moon. While the majority of the world's population believed that the Soviets had no connection with Western Europe, it was a lot more civilized than all of that. Yes, the Cold War had made us enemies on an official level, but we were hardly enemies on a personal level. After all, the Russians and us Brits both came under attack from Hitler just 50 years previously, so the flame of friendship was still there to be kindled. I can't disclose to you everything that I know about this. After all, most of it is still bound under the Official Secrets Act until 2040, after which they will most likely extend it by another 50 years. And nor do I have any proof. The few documents which were assigned to me were confiscated, and I had witnessed them destroyed in a furnace beneath Whitehall. I can tell you when it was and where it was launched from, though. It was in the middle of June 1989 when I was first chosen, if you can call it that. I can't recall the exact date, but I do remember that at the time I just went along with it. The two men who came into my study unannounced told me that I was required in the most verbally forceful way that you can imagine. I didn't believe them at first. I thought it was just another university joke, but I thought I would see how far it would go. They walked me to the car which had parked directly outside the entrance to the main building. I didn't take notice of what it was at the time, but it was probably a Jaguar XJ-12 judging by the shape and jet black color. The entire journey as I sat in the back seat was in silence, other than a couple of times when the man in the passenger seat answered a call on the CB radio which was fitted into the dashboard. My thoughts changed when, only an hour later, I found myself sitting at a table in the small windowless room all on my own, somewhere in Westminster. The lack of windows was certainly compensated for with the quality of carpets, and I remember that much. Without warning, the door opened and about a dozen people walked in. They were all middle-aged or older. Some were Russian, judging by their accents, and they all were clutching folders overflowing with documents while talking very aggressively amongst themselves. They didn't acknowledge me, at least not immediately. A lot of what was said went over my head. It was all political babble to me. They used terms which I wasn't familiar with, at least not in the context they referred to them in. I remember one specific phrase that one of the older men said, in a strong Russian accent. The last time a human being set foot on the moon was on the 14th of December 1972. That was almost 20 years ago. We must know if they're still up there. I was confused. Everybody knows that all three crew members from Apollo 17 returned home safely. There is no doubt over that. 
There was a brief silence as the others looked at each other, hoping for somebody to say something to break the silence. I don't know why I did it, but my naivety got the better of me. Sorry, I thought all three of the Apollo 17 crew came back to Earth. Everybody stared towards me as if I had just said something disgusting. The older man stared at me before answering my question. Do you think we are fearful of mere humans being on the moon? I felt silly. My mind darted between many different ideas, but he was right. It was over 20 years ago. If they had been left behind, they would have run out of oxygen and supplies within days, and would have perished soon after. This wasn't a good start for me. He leaned forward and he addressed me directly in a lowered tone of voice. You have, nor ever will have, any idea of what we know was up there. I said nothing, partly to avoid making myself look foolish, but also because the atmosphere in the room was so tense. He handed me some stapled pages from his folder. I assume that you were not briefed about this meeting, comrade. I wanted to correct him on his use of the term, comrade, but I decided to just read the document instead. I don't remember word for word for what it said, but the front was emblazoned with classified at level 7 and nothing else. I turned the page and there were a series of black and white photographs. The images were not only disturbing but horrifying. The first one was a landscape image taken on the lunar surface, but with some sort of structure visible in the distance. The second image was a lunar lander, but it looked like it had been sliced open from top to bottom. No jagged edges or debris lying about, just cut in half. All I remember was some Cyrillic characters on the side which remained. The third image was the most disturbing. It was a very basic spacesuit laying on the lunar surface with the mangled, icy remains of its occupants scattered around the broken visor. It almost looked as if he had been ripped out of his suit, through his visor at a very high speed. The fourth image showed several other spacesuits laying on the surface, maybe 75 yards away from the camera. I certainly wasn't expecting to see this. I wanted to go outside and throw up but I held it back at least until the meeting was over. Russian Lunar Landing, October 1968, he said, as I glazed at the horrific images. Those Americans thought that they would get to the moon first. They thought Russian technology was inferior. They were wrong. One of the British men sitting across the room stubbed out his cigarette on the table. For Christ's sakes, Kratzov, stop with all the commie propaganda and get to the point. The older man, who I now know as Kratzov, didn't hesitate to slim down his story. Okay, so we landed on the moon in 1968, only about 6 kilometers from where Apollo 17 landed in 1972, but nowhere near any of the other American moon landings. We know that they landed safely, but radio contact was lost about five hours after they landed. We assume that it was a mechanical failure of the plutonium fuel cell. 
they couldn't take off or communicate. It was both a victory and a loss for Russia. This was a secret mission, so everybody involved just carried on as normal after. Death was nothing new to them, no matter how many times that they saw it. I started to join the dots in my head, but I remained fixated on what Kratsov is saying. The Americans landed their manned lunar module in July 1969, and then four more than the last one in December 1972. And it was on December 22nd, 1972 that we were told. Kratsov looked over to one of the other men who would all remain silent. He spoke with a Texan accent, but with a very deep and authoritative voice. Yes, as soon as we were sure, we notified the Kremlin immediately. He paused as he rifled through some of his notes. There had been a discovery by the crew on board of Apollo 17 of an unknown lunar module. We assumed that it was Russian, and a few minutes after receiving the images, they confirmed that the craft we had discovered was Russian. Tell him what your crew found, comrade, Kratsov said to the American. Well, we weren't exactly sure at the time, but the debris ladder on the module were in fact human remains. Not only that, but they were all decapitated beyond all recognition. Well, soon after their gruesome discovery, the three crew members of Apollo 17 unanimously announced that they wanted to return to Earth immediately. We told them that it was impossible. The service module that was orbiting the moon was in the wrong trajectory at the time, and so they had no choice but to stay inside the module until it was time to return. They told us that from inside the module, they could see figures outside, picking over the equipment that they had left outside. I mean, these guys were what? 20 feet away from whatever these things were, with only the lunar module to protect them. Those modules are designed to withstand the vacuum of space and the forces of the launch, and they simply aren't designed to withstand physical attack. I was so shocked. I just asked him without thinking what I was about to say. So if this all happened, why did the Apollo 17 crew look so normal when they were welcomed back in front of everyone? He almost smiled as he said it. Of course they looked happy, smiling and waving to everyone. The men that everybody saw that day had been nowhere near a spacecraft, let alone the moon. I was confused. But he continued before I had a chance to say anything. Those men were in no fit state to be in the public eye when they came back. So we thought we'd get some actors to take over all their PR and celebrity status until they got better. Unfortunately for them, they never did get better. I mean physically they were fine. But mentally, forget it. Their minds were gone. Half of the time, they had to be sedated just to get them to sit down and eat. Wouldn't stop talking about seeing these figures everywhere. And when one of them finally told us about them, well, it wasn't pretty. He said they were like an opaque shadow, but with such a menacing stare. He said one of them looked right at him as he peered out of the lunar module. I think he meant he stared right at it, because from what he said, they did not have eyes. 
He said that they just stared straight into your soul, plundering all your thoughts and projecting fear and terror into your mind. We still don't know a lot about what had happened up there. All we have to go on are the pictures and not much else. I turned the page of the document that I held in my hand. The edges were now damp from the sweat forming around my palms. The next image showed a glimpse of one of these figures. It was hideous. It was nothing more than a very dark shadow, but with a very distinctive outline and limbs, if you can call them that. It's hard to tell from the angle from which the photograph was taken, but I would guess that these figures were about 9 or 10 feet high. So what do I have to do with any of this? I asked him. One of the other men quickly replied, As a professor of psychology, we need to be certain that if the crew of this next mission are affected in any way, that you will be able to cure them. I was shocked. I still don't know what this had to do with me. I still fail to understand why you feel the need to involve me with this. A few of the men started looking at each other before Kratsov just came out and said it. We have our reasons for selecting you. We have studied your case file extensively, and we are satisfied that you meet all the necessary criteria for this task. I stood up in anger. That's ridiculous. You mean to say that just because I spent 18 months working in a mental asylum, suddenly I'm qualified to cure your crew after they see things that go beyond the human imagination, 20 feet away from them, while they're a quarter of a million miles away from another living soul? You obviously have no idea how psychology works, do you? Why on earth would you want to send anybody back there? The last crew in 72 barely made it back alive. If you call me and spoon-fed your dinner at the age of 39 alive. Kratsov wasn't entirely pleased, but I refused to go ahead with this. Okay, tell you what. Take these documents. Read through them carefully, and if you change your mind, let us know. My mind was already made up. I wasn't going to take on this assignment, but I took the documents anyway to avoid further confrontation with Kratsov or the others. I was then driven back to my university by the two suited goons who had brought me all the way to London. I will admit, I did consider it once I had had the time to let it sink in, but I decided that hearing first-hand accounts of evil... Ungodly figures from intelligent men who had had their minds pulled apart by some otherworldly force just wasn't for me. I still remember the launch details and the number of crew members though. It was launched from the Okaks launch site in Russia on the 22nd of December 1990. There were three crew members, one British and two Russians. I can't recall their names though. I thought no more about it and I filed the documents away in a box folder in my study. In January of 1991, a day or two after we had returned from the Christmas break, I received a phone call. I was to be picked up the next day, and I was to bring with me the documents that I had been given about seven months before. I reminded them that I wanted nothing to do with this. They understood and they respected my wishes. They agreed that I would not have to conduct any psychological experiment, but I was still to attend tomorrow. 
As planned, I was picked up by the same two goons who had dropped me off the last time, both still as talkative as before. I brought my briefcase with me containing the documents as requested. On arrival to Whitehall, I wasn't taken to the small room with no windows. I was instead taken downstairs into the cellar. Kratzoff and a few of the others were there too. It's good to see you again, comrade. In a way, I was confused by his ambiguity. What did he mean by, in a way? Yes, well, I was told that I wouldn't need to conduct any psychological treatments. So why am I back here? He paused before looking up from the ground. The mission was a failure. I thought about something to say. Power or communication problems? I replied gingerly. Kratzoff sighed. Neither, unfortunately. The equipment was fine. Until after we saw what happened to them on the video link monitor. I felt ice cold with fear over what he was about to tell me. The figures. They were not only still there. They were waiting for them. As soon as they landed, they hardly had time to turn off the navigation computer before the whole thing was ripped apart. I tried to think logically for a moment. These were figures that we were talking about. What if there was a mechanical failure? What if... Kratzoff interrupted me. There was no failure, and I'll tell you how I know. Those figures are just the foot soldiers. They have been warned off of the moon twice. There are no more warnings. If we do return, they will class it as an act of war. And I don't mean one with guns and bombs. This will be a war on the psyche of the human mind. Nobody can imagine what this is like. I couldn't think of anything to say. The module landed on the lunar surface at 3.45am on Christmas Day, 1990. At 3.47am, the crew were seen on video link as they were decapitated in the lunar module. At 3.48am, all of the high-speed line printers at Mission Control just printed the same text again and again, warning us to stay away from the moon, with great details of the consequences if we do not heed their warning. I was both angry and fearful. I was angry as to why they would send three innocent men to their inevitable death, a quarter of a million miles away to be torn apart by these figures. But I was fearful for what we would all suffer if another moon landing took place in the future. So, what do we do now? I asked Kratzoff. You have the documents. Kratzoff stood there with his hands out. I took them from my briefcase and I handed them to him. No copies. You have not duplicated these. I shook my head as I regretted not doing so earlier. He walked down the corridor to a small room which contained a metal chute. He lifted the metal lid and an orange glow filled the room, along with a wave of hot air. He loosely wrote up the documents and threw them into the chute, leading to the furnace before the lid slammed back over it. That was the last trace. As long as you have made no duplications, officially, that mission never took place. He immediately went back into the corridor. I followed him, 
closing the door to the furnace room behind us. You can find your own way home, comrade. He reached out to shake my hand. After what I had just heard and done, I shook his hand instinctively without thinking. Please don't imagine our paths won't ever cross again, comrade. We may need you again one day, but next time your assistance would be mandatory. He said as he turned and he walked away. It wasn't until 1997 when I met Kratsov again. Our meeting wasn't deliberate, but I had a feeling that it wasn't accidental either. At the time, most of the secret work that I used to do in the 80s and early 90s had concluded. The agencies had all been dissolved, along with the Soviet Union, and so there is very little secret work available on this side of the Atlantic. I worked in various institutions over the years, most of them run by the NHS. I did some studies on patients in Broadmoor just for under a year. Contrary to those who believe that it's a prison, it's actually a high-security hospital. The only difference between it and any other NHS hospital was the absence of the patient's right to refuse treatment. Now don't get me wrong, I never conducted evil, twisted experiments like you would see in the house on Haunted Hill or the horrors of Dr. Mengele in 1940s Germany. All of my experiments were psychologically based and intended to help patients regain as much of their normal life as they could possibly have. Officially, they could not refuse treatment, but I always gave my patients the chance to opt out whenever they felt like it. I was at a psychology convention in West London. It was on for a few days, so I was staying in a hotel near Stonebridge Park. You'll have to forgive me for not remembering the name of the place, but it was almost 20 years ago. I was in a bar attached to the conference center one evening, talking to professors from other universities when I heard him. Comrade, over here. It was Kratsov. What was he doing here? An ex-Soviet military commander at a British medical convention. I excused myself from the group that I was talking to. They shared some strange looks with each other when I seemed to respond to the calling of comrade. After all, I had never discussed what had happened seven years earlier with anybody. I walked over to Kratsov. He was holding a brandy glass in one hand and had the smoking stub of a thick cigar in the other. He was dressed differently to the last time that I had seen him. He certainly looked more like a civilian now. He no longer wore the dark green blazer adorned with multiple military medals on his chest. Kratzoff, what are you doing here? He had a surprised smile on his face. Well, I'm not here for your psychology diagnosis if that's what you mean. I was surprised at how human he seemed compared to the last time that we had met. I can only presume that the collapse of the USSR had lightened his mental workload. We sat down at a table on the less crowded side of the bar. So, like I said, what are you doing here? I asked him. Ah, well, I contacted your university but they said you were no longer teaching there. So I made a few phone calls, greased a few wheels, and I found out that you were going to be here for the next couple of days. It seemed like he had certainly made an effort to find me. 
My presumption that our meeting that evening was no accident was confirmed. So, what are you doing now? I asked him. Well, when Mother Russia began to fall apart, I did what any smart man would do in that situation. I took advantage. He chuckled as he took another sip of his brandy. He could see the inquisitive look on my face. He put his brandy glass on the table, and leaned forward and he continued to tell me. Well, let's just say that some countries east of Europe, but west of Russia were able to get a discount on surplus military hardware. He winked as he relit his extinguished cigar. I was responsible for liquidating assets, mostly military hardware. Tanks, aircraft, trucks, weapons, ammunition. You get the picture. So, my instructions were simple. Sell what you have for the best price you can get, and forward the money directly to Moscow. It made sense to me. After all, what would the largest communist state want to do with hundreds of thousands of vehicles and hundreds of millions of rounds of ammunition when it's in the process of falling apart eternally? I think I can guess what happened next, I told him. Perhaps, but there's no harm in telling you anyway. So, leaders from all over Eastern Europe and the Baltics could now buy the best military hardware in the world for a fraction of what it would cost them to manufacture. But there was a problem. How to transfer the payment? Banks asked too many questions, even in Russia. Kratsov took another sip of his brandy. I told them straight. I would only accept payment in gold bullion or US dollar bills. No compromise. And the rest was simple. Paperwork was forged, amounts changed. 100 tanks for 300,000 could so easily be changed to 700 tanks in the paperwork after the sale was complete. Suddenly, I had another 600 tanks at my disposal which I could sell and keep the proceeds to myself. Weren't you afraid of being caught? I asked instinctively. Kratsov chuckled. Please, comrade. This was the fall of the Soviet Union. The biggest military power that the world had ever seen. Yes, there were those who were supposed to keep a check on things. But there was nothing that an envelope of $100 bills couldn't fix. He flicked his hand at me. Summoning me closer to listen to what he was about to say. Those who knew didn't care, and those that cared didn't know. We talked about politics and the fall of communism for a couple of hours before we ended up on the topic of the failed lunar mission in 1990. Suddenly the jolly mood darkened, despite the quantities of alcohol that we had consumed. Comrade, if we are to discuss this topic, may we continue this conversation in private? I had to agree with him. It may have been the late 90s, but talking about top secret space launches in a public place would have raised a lot more eyebrows than the sight of two men going into the same hotel room. So we left the bar and we went back to my hotel room, which was a few minutes walk from the conference center. When we got back to the room, he sat on the chair next to the television. I pulled the other chair from across the room and we sat opposite of each other as we resumed our conversation from the bar. So what became of the missions? I asked him. I didn't. 
I couldn't tell you everything we knew back then, comrade. He sighed with frustration. We should have never set that mission up there. It felt wrong from the start, but how could I stop it? I was just a cog in the giant communist machine. I could understand his inability to prevent it. He certainly had remorse over it. After the mission in 68 failed, we made contact with what was behind the dissemination of those two missions. My ears pricked up. I wasn't expecting him to say that. We had an open line of communication between the launch site and them. Not the figures, they were just the soldiers. No, this was much more real. So what were they? I asked him. We don't know. They didn't understand our questions, but they communicated by the one true universal language. Science. They had developed technology which was inconceivable to us at the time. Now, I don't know how much you know about technology, comrade, but I will break it down in simple terms for you. Before we made contact, we had little success in developing semiconductors. We sent them samples and plants explaining our problems with simple symbols, and they returned the solution. Sent? How did you send it? I asked. It's not as if they had sufficient radio bandwidth to send images to the moon and back. Probes. We sent many probes to the moon. Inside were samples of our failed semiconductors, made of germanium. He continued as he walked over to the mini bar and helped himself to another drink. They returned probes with the solution to the problem. They suggested replacing the germanium with silicone. Also included were tiny quantities of chemical solutions which they suggested we use to aid the photolithography process. There was so much more reliable than the stuff that we were using before. Unbelievable stuff. We analyzed these samples and produced larger quantities of them. The process now worked flawlessly. I was amazed. I didn't quite understand all of what he was saying, but I understood the general idea of it. Whatever was up there was helping the Soviets to develop higher technology. But, Kratsov continued, we knew we weren't the only ones being helped. Over the next few years, we had agents in the United States who provided us with samples of American semiconductors. The process was identical to the one provided to us by them. This was no coincidence. America had contact with them too? I asked him in no uncertain terms. Of course, but they had used their technology to enrich their capitalist society, selling it to their general population in the new concept of gadgets and electronic computers. We, on the other hand, used it to enhance our society and military power. It all started to fit together. The technological improvements over the past 50 years were extraordinary. Too extraordinary for humans to complete unassisted. So, if they helped you to advance your semiconductor industry, why were they so hostile? He sat back down as he answered me. Comrade, you must remember one thing. They are not afraid of us. They don't have the ability to feel fear although they understand how they can use it against us. 
They do, however, have self-preservation instinct, as do all intelligent forms of life. I had to ask the question, even if I didn't want to hear the answer. So what did they want in exchange for this knowledge and scientific assistance? Kratsov leaned back in his chair as he tried to think of a way to word his answer. Uh, how to say this? I remained silent as I waited for him to reply. Well, they wanted to conduct experiments on the human mind. Don't assume they weren't asking for our permission. They didn't need any permission. They could do what the hell they liked. No, what they wanted was our cooperation in allowing their experiments to walk among the rest of society and to minimize their interference. A chill ran down my spine. I asked him what sort of experiments they wanted to conduct. Psychological experiments, of course. They wanted to see the reaction of the general population when a small number of us are altered and allowed to remain physically unchanged. Kratsov started to look uncomfortable as he talked about the subject. He started pacing around the room as he talked. Let me ask you something, comrade. Do you believe in God? I hesitated before I answered honestly. No, I'm agnostic. I'm open to the concept of organized religion, but I'm not entirely convinced by it. He pointed at me as he chuckled quietly. That, comrade, is a good answer. I felt slightly uncomfortable by this time. What does my faith or lack thereof have to do with extraterrestrial assistance in Soviet technology? Go on. What has it got to do with religion? Well, they have already conducted experiments before, which were hugely successful for them. They altered the psyche of a few people around our planet over the space of several centuries. People called them prophets. Suddenly my mouth went dry and I started to sweat. Tell me you're joking, Kratzoff. He lowered his tone of voice. This is no joke, comrade. I'm serious. I was brought up as a Catholic myself and I've grown to accept the fact. I still wasn't sure whether or not to believe him. I don't think that he was lying to me, but he may have been mistaken or interpreted it incorrectly somehow. Okay, for the sake of this conversation, let's assume that's all the prophets. And Kratsov interrupted me. Most, comrade, most prophets but not all of them were part of their experiment. We just don't know which ones. I continued my question. Okay, so let's assume that most of the prophets were part of the experiment. What are they going to do now? I mean, it's not as if they can create another religion. We have already had new religions in the past few hundred years, and they mostly fail because people are too set in their ways to accept a new belief system into their life. Kratsov confirmed what I believed was true. You're right, but religion is an old experiment. They know that it was successful. You can see the results for yourself. What they want to know is how to experiment with, how could you say, anti-profits. I didn't quite understand. I needed to know more. What do you mean by anti-profits? Kratsov thought for a moment before he spoke. 
We don't know. We don't think they've started yet, at least, that's what they've told us. The concept of a known unknown from an extraterrestrial race was horrifying. Kratsov continued in a serious tone of voice. All we know is that they won't begin to experiment until our home planet completes 2,000 rotations around the sun, after the birth of one of the prophets. It couldn't have been clearer if he had spelled it out for me in foot-high letters on my hotel room wall. So you mean that they plan to conduct their new experiment after the year 2000? Bearing in mind that in 1997, the concept of the new millennium was generally exciting and invigorating. This gave it a much more sinister prospect. I could only assume what they had planned, but if you want my opinion, they are going to turn small numbers of people against the rest of us, possibly using the previous experiment as a framework. However, because of how widespread the last experiment was, and how many people find comfort in it, it will be almost impossible to isolate and eliminate. My mind was all over the place by now. I was trying to comprehend what Kratzoff knew. So, what will be the outcome? I asked, not expecting a direct answer. Kratzoff looked worried. I don't know. I just think that we need to be aware that the next time that we are attacked, it will be by those from our own species. Not for land, money, or even freedom, but for a false ideology which was given to their ancestors several hundreds of years ago by the results of an experiment by extraterrestrial beings for reasons we can't begin to understand. After that point, the conversation drew to a close. But like all Russians, Kratsov didn't want our meeting to end on a low note. We talked about topics closer to home for the next hour or so. Football, television, our families and so on. Before he saw my camera on the table and he took an interest in it. At the time, I was a keen amateur photographer so I took my camera to London with me, even though it stayed in my hotel room the whole time. He asked me to take a photo of him. I don't usually take photos of people. Landscapes and architecture were more my subject of choice. I took a few photos of Kratzoff. We had another drink and then he left. I remember him saying that he would like a copy of the photos next time we would meet. I wish that I would have kept in contact with him. Back in those days, it was impossible to maintain contact with international acquaintances. Obviously, there is no Facebook or Twitter, and you just can't try and speak to every Kratzoff you find in the telephone book. It's not quite as common as the English name Smith or Jones, but it's certainly not uncommon. Maybe it's more like the Russian equivalent of Wilson or Roberts. Sadly, I never saw Kratzoff again.
think we did it this time There's something in the air inside the stars shine There's something in the air 